I want to take about 11 sermons in Revelation to the end of March, given the, rep the repetition of certain numbers in Revelation. Maybe I should just take seven sermons or 666 sermons or 144,000 sermons, but it'll just be 11. That'll take us out to Easter time, and it's sort of a survey of Revelation. We're not going to go through every text, but for many Christians, uh, Revelation is kind of the, the, the big book of biblical curiosities. Angel armies, horses on clouds, uh, books you eat, flying scorpions, the land beast, the sea beast, the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, all of it here before us, verse 1, chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And all of this is shown to us by way of imagery, quite heavy imagery. Now, some of what soon took place, just looking at this first line, very first line in the book, chapter 1, verse 1, what soon takes place. Some of it took place around the time this was written. Some of it takes place over living history, and some of it is still to come. For me, the word coin of laster day helps organize the timestamp of this book. It comes from when my daughter Holly was three years old. She's now 19, so this goes back a little while. I was helping her wash her little hands, kitchen sink, and on the windowsill was a piece of artwork she had made for us, and she asked if she could hold what she made laster day, which happens when you're three and you're thinking of yesterday and the last time I was at Sunday school in the same breath. Here is the last time Jesus spoke biblically, and yet the reality of things still to come means he could have just as well said these things yesterday. Revelation is a book about Lasterday, as I call it, what has been, what is now, and what will be. Just as verse 8 here in chapter 1 says of Jesus that he is and was and is to come, so too Revelation has a similar cadence. It's about what has been, it's about what is, and it's about what is to come. Now, Revelation is not Jesus wins. It's often summarized like that, but when Revelation begins, Jesus has already won. He's glorified. So the message of Revelation is not Jesus wins in the end. He's already won. The message of Revelation is we win in the end, the church. The message is the church, despite being a very human entity, despite all her flaws and everything set against us at all times, through every generation and culture, the church will make it to the glorified end awaiting us because Jesus has won already. I think that's worth repeating. The message of Revelation is not Jesus wins. Jesus already won. He's presented as glorified. The beginning of this book and all the way through. So the message is the church wins. That despite everything set against us at all times, in every generation, in every culture... The church will make it to the glorified end awaiting us, partakers in his glory, because Jesus has already won. Revelation doesn't preach to us the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection for the sins of the world. It builds on that gospel already preached throughout the New Testament. And so Revelation is about the response of the church and the world to the gospel preached. 
The response of the church is to be faithful, faithful in our witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus, faithful to the end, faithful even to death if that's required of us. The response of the world is to resist to death, God reconciling the world to himself. I can show you a place or two in Revelation. We might look at one of these places where intense judgment is unleashed and people recognize it's from God. And rather than saying, God, I'll I'll do it your way, they shake their fist at God and say, never, never. The church's response to the gospel is to witness to it. Witness is a big word in Revelation. We witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus. He being everything these passages Seth just read to us in chapter 1 and chapter 19, what they say he is in these passages, all these terms that get used of him in chapter 1 and chapter 19 as a representative, as a way of starting revelation here with you. But the world's response under the influence of Satan and sin is to counter Jesus' gospel with a host of other gospels. Some of them in the form of other religions, some of them in the form of political ideology. Some of it is just the deification of self and all that flows from that. But every other gospel in the end, every other gospel at the end is revealed for what it was all along. It is opposition to the Alpha and Omega, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who is coming again to complete his reclamation project of the world. Revelation is about how the church's gospel witness to the world requires faithfulness to the word of God embodied in the person of Jesus and that that faithfulness may in fact cost us. There are a lot of martyrs in Revelation and it's really why it was an important book to the early church. They were often paying the price of martyrdom but the faithful witness of the church over time In all eras and cultures and generations, the faithful witness of the church over time until Jesus returns, it's the faithfulness of the church that has initiated the collapse of the old creation and old order to be replaced by something new when Jesus returns to vindicate his people. The church will make it to the glorified end awaiting us because Jesus has won already. Now that's Revelation in summary, and yet Revelation is almost impossible to summarize given its range and its complexity. Every summary is controversial because of long-standing disputes over how to understand apocalyptic imagery which Revelation is full of. In fact, the word apocalypse is in the very first line, the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 1. Revelation there is actually the word apocalypse. Uh, You know, zombie apocalypse, for instance. What's zombie apocalypse about? The dead buried in graves are hidden. So apocalypse gets something hidden that gets revealed. And so when you're watching a zombie apocalypse like World War Z or uh, The Walking Dead, I've been told I look like Rick in The Walking Dead. Any Walking Dead fans in here? Do I look like Rick or not? Yes, I do. Thank you very much. I am so glad you feel comfortable to do that. The dead buried in graves are hidden. This is how apocalypse works, taking zombie apocalypse as a for instance. And then due to some cataclysmic event, they are now no longer hidden. They're out of their graves and they're wreaking all the havoc that they do. Destruction follows. 
What apocalypse is as a genre is it's the unveiling of destruction, okay? That's what apocalypse means. So revelation reveals, revelation reveals to us, unveils for us how the old order, old creation, now groaning under the weight of sin. Remember, we, we talked about how creation groans. We saw that in Romans chapter 8. Revelation reveals to us that the old order, now groaning under the weight of sin, it will be destroyed, but, and this but is very important, destruction doesn't mean God junks this world. People have thought Revelation teaches it's all going to burn, but that doesn't mean God junks this world and starts over. In fact, he seems to bring his new heavens and new earth out of purging the old. It's the renewal of this world that we're awaiting. Even the resurrection of the good world God made and delighted in before sin entered the picture back in Genesis. So the final judgment that gets previewed in Revelation comes not because God is destructive and wants to terrorize the world, but because his reclamation project was undertaken all along to reconcile the world to himself by way of removing and banishing once and for all everything opposed to him presently infecting the world order that we live in, that we live under. Now we'll get into this at angles as we go through select portions of Revelation, but all this to say Revelation is complex. It's not preached a lot. I've heard from some of you since announcing this that you've never heard preaching from this book, maybe beyond the, the, the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3 that preachers want to preach at churches when they're mad at them. But Revelation doesn't preach easy. It's complex. I have my, I have my work cut out for me. However, Complex doesn't mean complicated. Look, if something is complicated, that means I'm probably not going to put the time and effort out to, to understand it. It's too exhausting if it's complicated. But if something is complex, I can understand complex things. It may take some time. It may take some reflection. It may take some study. But and I may even be drawn to understanding it. I may be really intrigued to understand it. But I know going in that complex things defy simple summary. So what I want to do in this series, I just want to give you a beginner's guide to the end. A beginner's guide is designed to give you a handle. It's a start on understanding something, in this case, something that is complex. And with this in mind, let me offer you a little grid here at the beginning a way of categorizing what we have here in this book, and it's this. That some of what we get from Revelation, we need to put in pencil. Some of our understandings of what we believe Revelation may or may not be teaching, we ought to put that in pencil. And then some of what we understand from this book, we should put in ink. And then some of what we understand from this book is put in blood. Pencil, ink, blood. Take, for instance, these passages that we've opened with this morning. What we understand about Jesus here is written in blood. Chapter 1, verse 6, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Chapter 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha and Omega, 
says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Chapter 19, verse 11, the white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Verse 13, His name is the Word of God. Verse 16, on His thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords is written. By blood, then, I mean... There is no disputing among Christians who Jesus is. And doctrines that rely on these kinds of identifiers of who Jesus is are written in ink. There's also no disputing among Christians that Jesus will return. But doctrines that rely on that reality end up getting written, some of them, in pencil because we are talking about the future. We're talking about things we don't yet know. We haven't yet experienced. Let me give you an example of the pencil. If you've turned over to chapter 19, Seth read for us verses 11 through 16. Let me read for you verses 17 to 21. Chapter 19, verses 17 to 21. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse. That's Jesus, we know from the first part of what we read in chapter 19. And against his army, verse 20, and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who is in its presence and has done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged on their flesh. Happy New Year, by the way. <laughs> now, I'm not saying this is written in pencil, okay? As if some scriptures... Are really important, some sections of Scripture, and we, we, we you know, and, and then some are, are not at all. It's all Scripture. Revelation 19, verses 17 to 21 that I just read is as much Scripture as Revelation 19, 11 to 16 that Seth read for us earlier. The difference is this. Who the beast is here in verses 17 to 21 is not as clear to us as who Jesus is in verses 11 to 16. So whatever conclusion you want to make about the identity of the beast, the, this powerful figure in Revelation, put it in pencil. That's what I mean in drawing a distinction between blood and ink and pencil in our understandings of what Revelation gives us. I can be dogmatic about who Jesus is. I cannot be dogmatic about who the beast is. It's bad form to get dogmatic about imagery. I don't know who that is, the beast, or even if we should expect one particular figure at one particular moment. The term antichrist appears nowhere in Revelation. But I do know who Jesus is. And I do know that he's central to the story unfolding. This is his apocalypse. Something hidden, tied up in imagery and time, which he unveils, reveals to us, first by way of this book, and all its mystery, next by way of his appearing in the clouds, when he does, the day of the Lord, it's called throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, that day when he puts 
the old order to death and brings the renewed order in. Now for today, having turned to Revelation chapters 1 and 19 to see him, let's see in each chapter here, these passages we've read, chapter 1, chapter 19, let's see the redeeming Jesus first and then second, the judging Jesus, and then we'll be done. The redeeming Jesus and the judging Jesus. We have redeeming Jesus in chapter 1 here, who also judges, and we have the judging Jesus in chapter 19, who also redeems, same Jesus. The Jesus who redeems also judges, the Jesus who judges has also redeemed. There's no contradiction between these two roles in his person. So looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, the redeeming Jesus, pick it up in verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven, that's the Father in this context, okay, you've got a Trinity formula here in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1, the one who was and is and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, that appears to be another way, a revelation way of referring to the Holy Spirit in that in revelation, he works in rhythms of seven. The Holy Spirit is not seven spirits in one, but works in rhythms of seven all through this particular book. Again, there's a lot of heavy imagery here. Verse five, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead and the ruler of of the kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The redeeming God reconciling the world to himself through the sacrifice of Jesus. If you want to be in on the reclamation, the reconciliation of the world to its rightful ruler, when that time comes, and Revelation says it's coming soon, meaning the old order will not go on in its present state indefinitely. If you want to be in on the reconciliation of the world, you go through Jesus and him only. Why? Look at the terms in chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. There's no other faithful witness who did the will of God flawlessly but Jesus. It goes on, verse 5. There's, there's no other born of woman who conquered death by walking away from it after enduring it. The, the firstborn of the dead. There's no other who has freed us from our sins as verse 5 continues, and sins are both unrighteous and self-righteous in expression. There's no other who's freed us from our sins by his blood, redeeming Jesus and judging Jesus. Redeeming Jesus makes a way to God, the way to God. And given how Revelation also unveils just how determined our sin is, how defiant our sin is, it's incredibly gracious for the creator himself, who is Jesus, to take a peacemaking posture towards we who have vandalized his shalom, his good purposes for our flourishing. We in our sin, individually as people and collectively as humanity, we in our sin, we, we essentially declare war on God. We say, this is not your creation, it's ours to do with as we want to do. And Revelation speaks to this. That we have set ourselves up in the old uh, poem, uh, Invictus. We are the masters of our own fate. We are the captains of our own soul. Invictus is a Latin word that means unconquerable. We apply that to ourselves, but we fool ourselves because there's only one unconquerable, indestructible life. 
whose resurrection, his resurrection, proved that for all time. As servants of Jesus, verse 1 calls us that, chapter 1, verse 1, servants of, 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 of the Lord. We know this, having been redeemed by him, that he, his life alone is indestructible and unconquerable. But the way history plays out, when the church suffers, and Revelation presents the church suffering when the church suffers at the hands of those who think themselves the masters of their own fate and the captains of their own soul, while the church suffers at their hands, it's easy then to wonder, will the Lord vindicate us? We'll come to the passage next week in chapter 5. How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? The martyrs cry out. Is the church really going to make it? That's a central question in Revelation. What God reveals in this last book of the Bible here is yes, absolutely yes. The church will make it to the glorified end awaiting us because Jesus has won already. Revelation has always been a go-to text for the suffering church. And bookending this book with these passages in chapters 1 and 19 about who Jesus is in his victory... It reinforces the point on which our hope is set. Jesus' life is unconquerable, though human history is a seamless story of challenging that fact. Revelation presents this story. And so the book speaks of things in the past, and it speaks of things ongoing in the present. It speaks of things future, last day, if you want to put it all under one heading. Revelation presents in complex imagery... The story of a world needing to be reconciled to its maker are resisting and refusing this, and yet God still does it. You know, I've been telling you in the last couple of preaching series that the big story of the Bible is what God is doing about evil. And I've been telling you that with an eye toward Revelation, toward this series, because Revelation is not a story to itself. It's... That story, the big biblical story of what God is doing about evil, it's, it's that story told in one Bible book, which is why, by the way, Revelation alludes to or echoes virtually every book in the Old Testament. When Jesus paints his apocalypse, handing the apostle John his brush, the Old Testament is the palette. Revelation is not a standalone story to itself. It captures in one book the entire biblical story of what God is doing about evil, which is what? Which is sending his son directly into the teeth of it. First to redeem us from our evil and then sending his son again, which we are still awaiting, to rule a redeemed world in which evil will never again have a place. It will be kicked out by the one who will either be your final redeemer or your final judge. Verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. The sense of that is let it be. It's true, let it be. The redeeming Jesus, the judging Jesus. Looking over at chapter 19 now, I'm, I'm pairing 
chapter 19, verses 11 and six through 16 with chapter 1 here to see the both and. If I reject the faithful witness, that's what chapter 1, verse 5 calls him. If I reject the faithful witness, what I get is the faithful and true witness on the white horse, capital F, capital T, faithful and true, verse 11, chapter 19, the time for saving is past when Jesus appears this way after eons of patience with the world. The way we have him here in chapter 19, you look at this and go, Jesus, is that you? <laughs> really? Yes, the very same. And let me see again here, lest anyone get the wrong idea. He doesn't come this way as in chapter 19 because he's eager to destroy the world and the people in it. The text is careful back in chapter 1 verse 5 to remind us this is he who loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And just so it is because of his love for all he's made that he will destroy everything set against him in this world. Everything that has vandalized his shalom has a, a day of reckoning. Everything that's taken his designs for human flourishing and said, no thanks, no way, no how, it all comes from here. This place, this world, this is the place in, in rebellion. And we cannot keep trespassing here indefinitely. Sin hasn't made the world better. It hasn't made the world more interesting. It's made the world groan. And the world needs not just a redeemer to make us right in it, but also a judge to put everything about it right at an end point. Everything that's wrong for now. Chapter 19 presents us with this, Jesus destroying the old order. Judgment unfolds throughout Revelation. We've skipped ahead here in concert with how chapter 1 presents Jesus to us. I just want you to see the both and. But the old order is going to go away. And it won't go away on its own. And it won't go away without a fight. It has to be sent out. It has to be kicked out. Evil has to be sent away and it will be into hell. Jesus' own death and resurrection has always been a signpost of what's to come for creation. The earth as God made it. Jesus' body was crucified, right? What do we get in verse 13, chapter 19? He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood so that we're mindful of the sacrifice always. The old order, creation, subject to sin, is going to be put to death when he comes, as verse 15 describes. But just as Jesus' body was raised from the grave, so too creation gets a renewal. God will baptize the world as we know it now with fire, but raise up from that judgment a new earth. Now, if you're not a Christian... Or if you're a nominal Christian, you may be thinking, I can't believe intelligent people actually expect this. But this is the story we're in. If we take at face value that this is a created world, a created order, and there are good reasons for believing it is, and that the creation given to us as we 
commandeered it for ourselves. We disordered it. We, we made it our own to the exclusion of the Creator unless we've been reconciled to Him. And we have good reason to believe the Creator is a personal God who takes us seriously. Then, then what we've done to this world is a great slap in the face to Him who made it, sustains it, loves it. We've run off from Him and worshipped created things. And we've worshipped ourselves. And you know, if you've ever been cheated on, forgiveness isn't easy. God has been cheated on. And he could have, as many do when that happens, he could have opted to protect himself and keep that from ever happening to him again. But this God does not do. He acts in grace, keeps the way to him open to us for ages through Christ and because he's a personal God who also takes us seriously he eventually moves to liberate his creation from the death grip of our sin and Satan that's exactly what judgment is designed to do we should expect that from a personal God who is not apathetic toward all he's made the last thing God is is apathetic you don't want God to be apathetic you don't want God to be neutral. It changes the whole perspective and picture of who He is in Scripture. Revelation tells us in its own way, using its own imagery, that whatever else happens, the church will make it to the glorified end awaiting us because Jesus has won already. And because Jesus is superlative and there is no one like Him None who were, none who are now, none who are to come. No one like him. Revelation rings on this theme all the way through. This is where we'll be the next couple of months. Would you stand, pray with me, and then we're going to sing. Lord Jesus, as the one who is faithful and true, we thank you for your care for your church. We thank you that you have given to us such that we cannot repay. And we thank you that all of your promises, those that preceded your first coming were kept. Those that precede your second coming will be kept because you are good and there is no shadow in you. There is no turning away from what you have decreed. Father, help us as we go through a difficult book because of all the imagery to get the right moorings, to realize this book was not given to satisfy our curiosity. It was given to render us confident in the face of real opposition in our world. One has conquered one sits at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us and we will see that one come again with the armies of heaven with him. And we thank you, Lord, that for us this imagery no longer frightens but it thrills because you've taken away the sting of death for us and you've given us a hope. You've shown us what grace is and mercy You've been good to us. You've been good to this world. And when that day comes, no one has an excuse. No one can say, I didn't know or I didn't, 
If I'd have known, I would have, it, all of that is cut off. Father, I, I thank you that you are sovereign and good. I thank you that you are redeeming and vengeful. I thank you that you are everything you are without contradiction, that your attributes don't compete or conflict. That only in you do we see how what seems to be opposite characteristics are harmonized. Because you're the God with wounds, and there's no other God like that. And so we thank you for your care and your grace to us in Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.